0: morning well appreciate your uh, flexibility last week without the tables. hard to eat your breakfast and drink your coffee and take notes and all that um, just wanted to accommodate in case we had any guests last week and um, so this week we want to continue our our class called uh, introduction to our church and introduction to ambassador baptist church and we want to talk about what's so special about being a Baptist. Um, maybe you just kind of assume that, you know, hey, Baptist is the way to go. But but why are we Baptists? Why why are we not Presbyterian or or uh, Episcopalian or Lutheran? Um, what's so or Congregationalist or Mennonite or you know, what's so special about being a Baptist? And that's what we want to really answer this morning. Show what. What sets us apart as Baptists over against all other uh, forms of belief? All right. So let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll we'll get into our study this morning. Lord, thank you for the legacy that our church has—the the people who started as Baptists and who uh, were very much committed to the Baptist distinctives—and we pray that you would help us to understand uh, a little bit more about our heritage and about Uh, what we believe and and about what we hold very strongly. And, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be able to carry on that legacy, and not just because of our history as a church, but really because of the principles from which they are derived from the Scriptures. And we want to be faithful to your Word, and so we pray that you'd help us to, to be able to uphold those things as we uphold these distinctives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get started into this famous acrostic um, uh, of Baptists, let me uh, invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll get there in just a second, but 2 Timothy chapter 3. But we want to start by looking at the history or the origin of Baptists. There are several views of how Baptists came about and i'm not familiar i'm not sure if you're familiar with with these but the one is called the succession of churches view this is the one that's uh known as the trail of blood you ever heard of the trail of blood it goes all the way back to the new testament um, that that uh, yeah you ever heard of john the baptist right so you get there's a real there's your bible believing baptist right there all the way back to the early church and then what they do is they try to trace to Trace the Baptist faith all the way back from John the Baptist, supposedly the early church, all the way to today. There are several problems with this view. Um, by the way, they think before I show the problems with it, uh, they believe that Matthew 16:18 is referring to Baptists only. Matthew 16:18, Christ says to Peter, "On this rock I will build my Baptist church." See so there this this uh obviously this view is laced with lots of problems people are holding too strongly to the baptist faith the, the biggest problem is that baptists didn't start until 1600s the 17th century so so that that's um just not even good history they what they do though is they suggest that there were always baptists they just had different names so you had before the Baptists, you had Donatists and Waldenses and Anabaptists, and they were very similar to us, and so we'll just call them Baptists. So what they have to do is they have to take from the time of the early church all the way until the 1600s when the Baptists actually started, and they have to find groups that are as close as they can they can find to the Baptists, and we'll call them Baptists. And uh, so obviously there are some some problems. It it, it actually forces some some groups of churches into the Baptist mold. So they're looking for the mold to fill up what is the Baptist church, and what they've had to do is they've had to find actually some churches that are even heretical in nature to fill in that mold, and that's the problem. Okay, The second view of where Baptists came from is called the succession of principles view. Okay, So this is very similar. Instead of a trail of blood that goes from today all the way back to the New Testament, it's a trail of truth. And so um, even though they can't trace the churches back to Christ, they they can trace the principles. And so now they're looking for these principles in these various groups, and it's very similar to the the first view. The third view of where Baptists came from are from the Anabaptists. They say that the the Baptists came from the Anabaptist movement in the 1500s. Uh, Anabaptists were Protestant, but they were isolationists. That's where the Mennonites came from. Um, that, that is not where the Baptists came from. They did not come from Anabaptists. They did ve- feel very strongly against infant um, baptism, I believe, but, um, but th- that's not where the Baptists came from. Third is English separatist, or fourth, excuse me, English separatist view. And this is the correct view, I believe, based on my understanding of church history, this is um, the the Puritan separatist movement that started in England in the 17th century, 1600s. There. This is where the Baptists came from, and it, and it wasn't um, an establishment of a new religion. That's what we need to understand because when we hear, "Oh, the Baptists didn't start till the 1600s," what is this? A brand new faith? This is a brand new religion? And that's not a, that's not at all what's happening. Okay, but it's also not a, a string of churches that we're following all along. It's actually a group of people, the English separatists, who decided to go back to the Scriptures, okay, and they wanted to start looking at some of these principles. What what are we doing here? And so out of that English separatist movement came this group of, of people who started to believe in this way and started to rediscover, that's probably the best way to understand it, rediscover some principles in the New Testament that were already there. And so not a new religion like you think of um, you know the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that. It's it's a, re- a rediscovery. Um, der- it's it's a it's a set of beliefs that are derived from the New Testament, and it's just a rediscovery of of those principles. Okay. Any questions on that on the origin of the Baptists? All right. We go through that when we work through church history, and there are several of those lessons on. On, online, if you'd like to to listen to those, um, can can kind of get um, just a a basic understanding. There, I think there's thir- 13 weeks of church history. But if you if you looked in uh, towards the end of that series, you find uh, the the Baptist where the Baptist came from. All right. So now we want to get into this acrostic Baptist, and these following eight. Tenants of the Baptist system are all vitally important to what we believe and how we understand the church to operate. However, there are only two of these that are distinctly Baptist. So what you're going to find, and I'm going to point this out as we go through, you're going to find that several other churches believe in, you know, the, the Bible being the authority. Several other churches believe in some of these other things. But there are two tenets, two of these these items that we're going to pay special attention to because they actually make us distinct from all other we could call them denominations. I don't I don't believe Baptist is a denomination. I might have said that in other settings, but I, I don't believe it actually is. Um, the reason I say it is because it's just easy to call it that because everybody calls it that. Denomination is much more closely connected uh, than the Baptists are. So Presbyterians would be a denomination. Episcopalians would be a denomination. They actually have a a formal um, structure of not just an individual church, but all the churches together. So, like for example, you have the Presbyterian Churches of America, or something like that. So you have um, uh, a much more formal structure. That would be a denomination. We we are much less, much loose, much more loosely held together as churches. Okay, so we don't we don't uh, connect ourselves with, you know, they used to have the Northern Baptists and the Southern Baptists. I still have the Southern Baptists. Northern Baptists have gone um, liberal, but but anyway, that's that's another discussion. Okay, so but against all other groups of churches, we would say we are distinct for two specific reasons. We're going to come to those, and actually they're on your handout. They're they've got an asterisk next to them. Okay, first, biblical authority. Biblical authority. Here here is something that's not distinctly Baptist. Do you know any of other churches that believe in the bible being the authority let's talk about it I'll, I'll see if you can think of any all right first the bible is inspired we believe this second timothy 316 and 17 Will someone read that All right, so the fact that the Bible is inspired by God tells us that the whole Bible is from God. Since the entire Bible is inspired by God, the Bible has authority over us. God is our authority, and since God speaks through His Word, His Word is our authority. That's what we talked about last week. We make the Word the center of what we do at our church. Obviously, Christ, as He's revealed in the Word, but we make the, the Word of God central because that is our authority. Secondly, we believe that the Bible is inher- inerrant. That is it is without error. Anybody know John seventeen seventeen from memory? Sanctify them in thy truth, King James Version, thy word is truth, right? It's one you probably learned if uh, as a young as a young child if you grew up in church. okay Your word is truth. how do How does God sanctify us? He sanctifies us through his word. and so th- this is not surprising, right? If God is truth then we would expect all of His words to be true. So we can count on His Word being inerrant, that is, without error. And thirdly, it's infallible. Not only is it without error, but the Word of God is incapable of making any errors. That, that The Bible can never fail in any of its statements. And so that means that the Bible for us has absolute authority over us when it comes to faith and practice. And when we go to, when we have a question about something, we go to the scriptures because the scriptures cannot be contradicted. If we have someone who is arguing in a way that's opposed to the scriptures, we know that they're not arguing on behalf of God, right? We know that they're arguing on behalf of some other means. And so the Bible is incapable of making error, it is infallibly authoritative. So we have all sorts of authorities in our life. We're going to talk about that this morning. We get to Exodus 20 in the morning service. But could you imagine having an infallible authority? Be one thing to have an authority is just really good at leading and and he's mostly truthful, but, but to have an infallible authority. And that's what we have in the Word of God because that's how he speaks to us. Fourthly, the Bible is irreplaceable. There's nothing that can replace or stand above the Word of God. It's supreme uh, when it comes to life and practice, and so that's why at our church we seek to make the Word of God central to everything that we do. Our singing, our praying is based on the Word of God. Our our preaching is based on the Word of God. Our encouragement to one another is based on the Word of God. Our fellowship together is a result of um, our our um, is a result of the Word of God. And so that's the goal, is to exalt God and His Son through the ministry of the Word. We exalt God, we exalt Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Word. That is God's authoritative way of speaking to us. All right. so this doesn't make us distinct from other um, groups of churches. So can you think of any other churches that would actually believe that the Bible and practice that the Bible is their primary authority? What other kinds of churches would be in that category? You guys believe in the trail of blood? <laughs> Come on, what other churches? Help me out. Presbyterian? Good. Church of Christ? Okay, obviously we're going to differ on how they interpret these things, but who actually says, I'm going to the Bible for my final authority? Who else? Okay, the Methodists, some of the Methodists. Okay, some of the Lutherans. Good. All right. What's that? Nazarene. Okay, good. So there's lots of churches that that would actually fall under this category that would believe that the Bible is their primary authority. Okay? But we as Baptists hold to this very dearly. We're we're not the only ones who do it. That's my point. Secondly, autonomy of the local church. Again, this doesn't make us distinctly Baptist. When when I explain this, uh I'll see if you can think of any other than ours that are that believe in the autonomy of the local church. All right? If you think about it, there are four main systems of government. So how the church is governed. First, the papal system, where the church's ultimate authority resides in the pope, the papal system, right? So he's this supposed successor, and he's authoritative because he's come down from the apostles and whatever. Okay, that's the papal system. The second main system of government, to how to govern a church is the Episcopalian system, okay, where the church's ultimate authority resides in, not the Pope, but the bishops. okay, The bishops. And so there's often a succession of bishops that come back from the apostles in their view. Third is the Presbyterian system. Presbyterian system believes that the church's ultimate authority, okay, when I say ultimate authority, I don't mean when it comes to the Bible, I'm talking about how to govern the church. Uh, The the church's final authority, maybe, uh, is the Bible. But as far as government, it it resides in the elders or the presbytery. They have all these sessions. You have outside of a, well, even inside of a presbyterian church, you have the elders. And then outside of the the presbyterian church, you have a presbytery and sessions and synods and all this. And it's a hierarchical type system where if you don't know what you are supposed to believe on a certain subject, you go talk to the presbytery. You go talk to the... The, the higher session, um, the, the general assemblies that they have that, that regulate what the church believes and practices. Okay, So that's the Presbyterian system. And then fourthly is the one that we believe and hold very dearly. It's called the congregational system. That the church's authority when it comes to practice, when it comes to government, resides in the members, the congregation of the local church. And that's why we say autonomy. What do I mean by autonomy? What is it? Self-governing. Good. So it's it's independent. Now that doesn't mean independent from God. It still has Christ as its head, yes. But when it comes to, okay, who are we supposed to choose for our next pastor? Right? Do we go out to the the, the General Assembly and say, hey, who do you got in line for us? Do we go out to the other Baptist churches around us and say, hey, who are we going to put here. No, who, who makes that determination? The congregation does, right? And and um, so each church is autonomous in that way when it comes to government. There, There's no organization or person outside of our local church that governs us, okay? Now, now, when I say that, it sounds like we're being independent and we don't care about what Christ says. That's not the point, okay? We still have Christ as our head. Um, but But ultimately, when it comes to government, it comes down to you as the members. Now, you might think it comes down to me because I'm the pastor, but but technically, I answer to you, right? And when it comes to a vote, whether I should continue as the pastor, if that ever came up for a vote, whether I should continue, guess how many votes I have compared to you. I have one, you have one, right? So so, uh, the congregation is what governs. That's why we have business meetings. That's why we work through a lot of these things. That's why you are the one who chooses the pastor. You are the one who chooses the deacons. Okay. Um, I am giving leadership authority certainly, but when it comes to a vote, um, I, I'm on the same plane as you are. Okay. We don't have governing authorities outside outside of us when it comes to other Baptist organizations that say, okay, you need to you need to you need to believe this way, you need to practice this way, and so on. All right. Can you think of any other churches that would? Would hold to this that aren't Baptist, Congregational churches. Your your dad's a brethren brother church. I think they believe this way, right? No. Who's the authority you reside in? But they don't have any outside organizations, do they? Okay, which we wouldn't be opposed to that either. I mean, Acts 15 has that going on, um, where they would have an assembly come together and decide, hey, what, what should we think about something? And then here's what we recommend, but ultimately it's up to the church. Okay. How about the Mennonite church or, get this one, the Congregationalist church? Okay, there's. Um, I'm, now The Amish, I was trying to think of the Amish churches are governed by their own congregation pretty sure they are. I don't think they have like a larger outside. I think they're similar to the Mennonites. Um, Okay, why do we have the congregational system before we move on? Okay, I I believe this is scriptural. Who is it that Paul and James and Peter and John write their epistles to primarily? I mean, sometimes they write to the pastor of the church, but who do they primarily write them to? To the congregations, right? To the church who is at Corinth, to the church who is at Rome, to the church who is at Asia Minor, Ephesus, and so on. Turn to First Timothy chapter One. here's where I think it's most explicit that the way that 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 truth is maintained and um and and held very carefully is not as a result of the pastor or the Pope, okay It is the congregation look at first Timothy one, and that's not the right verse. I think it's three fifteen. Yes, 3.15. Let's start in verse 14. I'm writing these things, Paul says, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And we could stop there and we could get Paul's point from that. But here he actually uses an, uses an appositional phrase, which means it's the same thing as the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We might cringe a little bit when we think about that. That the church is the pillar and support of the truth. It doesn't say anything about a presbytery. It doesn't say anything about a set of bishops or a pope. It doesn't even say anything about a pastor. It is the congregation. It is the church as a whole, obviously which includes the pastor, But, but who is the pillar and the support of the truth. And so that means that our job is to maintain purity Within our lives, it's our job to govern that. It's our job to maintain pure doctrine. Right? Think about First John four one. Who's John writing to there? He's writing to churches. Right? He's writing to churches to let them know how they ought to conduct themselves. And he says, "Watch out for false prophets." Okay. So, so I believe this is something that we have a responsibility as a congregation to hold to: maintain purity, maintain pure doctrine. Guard the ordinances. We'll talk about that here in just a second. And then also elect officers. We don't have any other group outside of us who are electing officers for us. I, I hope you recognize that that's how Presbyterian churches work. right? That's how uh, Episcopalian churches and papal churches work. They don't have a congregation that says, you know what, we need this guy. We need to, we need to examine him. We need to pray. We need to have the Holy Spirit lead us. You know what they do? They find out from the presbytery or from the, pa- the 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 higher up, the hierarchical types that are basically telling them who they need to have as their leaders, telling them who they need to have as their um, their their different messengers and so on. But we believe that that's actually a part of the, the our responsibility as a church. Remember what Acts six says: choose from among you seven men. Right? He, he actually. Uh, the apostles are actually telling the church to do that. And then who's the one who actually makes the choice? Right? It, it is the church. Obviously, at that time, it was casting a lot because they didn't have uh, as much of the completed Scripture as we do. All right, any questions on the congregational part of our belief? Okay, we're, we're at number two. we got we to hustle. we got six more to go. And we got some important ones, too. So I'll, I'll, I'll work through this one pretty quickly. Priesthood of all believers. This is important but not distinctly Baptist, okay? This is not something that sets us apart as Baptist. There are other churches that believe this. I would say Protestant churches in general believe in this. The The idea of the priesthood of all believers, you, you have the idea right there in the title, but the priest is that that no longer do we need someone to go to in order to have access to God. That's the papal system, okay? You have to go to somebody and tell them all your sins, and you have to hopefully they can mediate between you and God. Now... We go to God through whom? Through Jesus Christ. So so think of it this way. We go to God through God. Okay, so we go directly to God, basically, because we can go to Jesus Christ. Okay, we don't have to have, and that means you don't have to come to me in order to go to God. You can go to God directly. You are an individual believer. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. You have Jesus as your mediator. And so... That means that as priests, we have a responsibility individually to live a holy life, right? God had higher standards for priests. And, and the, the point is that we are individual priests. That's what uh, 1 Timothy 2 talks about. That's what 1 Peter talks about, you know, that you are the priesthood of all believers, that you are God's holy priesthood. Each one of you is a priest. I don't know if you ever thought about yourself in that way, but you are a priest. You can go directly to God. Alright, that one doesn't set us apart. Again, That's just a uh, that would just be a Protestant one. Okay, we'll talk about what that means here in a second as well. Here is one that's got an asterisk next to it. That means it's very important. This one actually does separate us from other beliefs, other groups of churches. Um, obviously, we have some other churches that affirm these, the two ordinances, but they... And and the, I would say that they don't call themselves Baptists, but I would call them Baptistic. So like the Ohio Bible Fellowship, I'm not familiar. I don't know if you know some of those churches, but um, Dan and Tara, who were visiting here a couple weeks ago, they're from those kinds of churches, Ohio Bible Fellowship. Those are great churches. Um, I'm trying to think if we've had some other speakers that would be from that. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But um, Ohio Bible Fellowship would believe these same principles that I'm listing for you today, all eight of them. But they don't call themselves Baptists. They call them Bible churches. Okay. So that's one thing. Another one is Community Bible Church in Trenton. Remember Ken Brown earlier this summer on a Wednesday night? He's, that's the name of his church. So he would believe all these principles and hold them strongly, but he wouldn't call himself a Baptist. He calls himself a Bible church. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Um, so the, but when I say this makes us distinctly Baptist, it means that only Baptist churches and those who want to be like us um believe these things, okay? So, two ordinances, obviously you under, you know what they are, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh let's see. I'm I'm not going to talk about how we know that there are only two ordinances, but I, what I do want to tell you is that obviously you have the Catholics who believe in seven ordinances, they call them sacraments. They're they're actually means of grace, they call them. A way that they can get more grace from God. They earn it. So you have matrimony and extreme unction and ordination. and uh, You probably remember some of the other ones as well. I have them all listed here, but uh, that's not important. Okay? They, they believe that there are more ordinances. We believe that there are only two based on the Scriptures, and so we, we observe them. First is belie- uh, believer's baptism. It's a sign. An ordinance is a sign or a memorial memorial of, of something that has already taken place. Okay, that's what the believer's baptism is. It's by grace through faith. That we are not getting saved. We're not earning any points with God. We're simply responding to what God has already done. That's believer's baptism. It's a it's a memorial. It's a it's a it's a sign. To, it's a symbol to keep us thinking properly about what has taken place. They've been they've become dead to their old way of life. Right now they've been raised to to walk in newness of life. Um, Lord's Supper is a memorial of what Christ has done on the cross. Okay, and as we'll talk about next week, when we get to our statement of faith, we believe in close communion. Close communion. Uh, I'll talk about that in more detail. But basically, what it is is that we believe that a person has to be saved and baptized in a member of a church like ours in order to take the Lord's Supper with us. There are some other. Uh, there, there's one other way that I think would be acceptable closed communion, which means only your members. I think that would be a fine if a church decided to do that. Um, but the, but the, the third option, which is open communion, says anybody who says they're saved can be take the Lord's Supper. I, I don't think that that's biblical. Hopefully we'll have some time to talk about that next week. Alright? So these ordinances are what set, are one of the things that set us apart from all other Groups of churches. Okay. I, K B A P T I, individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. Okay. So priesthood of believers was our access to what, or to whom, is our access to God. It says that each of you has individual access to God. Here, individual soul liberty means that each of you have the ability to interpret the Scriptures properly. Okay, you don't have to go to a special prophet and find out what, what God means here. Um, the the Scriptures tell us that each of us have the ability to appraise all things. Why? Because we have been given the mind of Christ. Okay, that doesn't mean we always do it rightly. Okay, We interpret wrongly on occasion, but uh While the priesthood of believers says we have access to God, the individual soul liberty says we have access to the Scriptures. No longer are we blinded to the truth of the Scriptures, and we can't understand it. Once you become a Christian, you now have the ability. There is a process that theologians call illumination. It's a very helpful word, because it just tells us it turns the light on for us. The Spirit is our uh, illuminer, if that's the word. He's the one who illumines us. And so, you have that when you come to Christ. And praise God for that, right? You have the ability to interpret the Scripture yourself. You don't have to go to someone and say, you know, obviously there. Peter said, wow, I'm reading Paul's writings and these are hard sayings, right? So, so that doesn't mean that, that you'll never have to struggle. You can just kind of loosely not care about your about studying the Scriptures and just, you know... Come on, bring it on, and, and I'll understand it all. No, that's not gonna, how it's going to happen. But it does mean that, that you know, with work and with your uh, being complicit with the Spirit, then then the the Scriptures will be illumined to you. All right, and here's probably the most important tenet of us as Baptists. Okay, this one sets us apart from all other groups of churches, like the two ordinances. Now, that doesn't mean other churches don't do the two ordinances. I didn't explain that. Other churches do them, but not the way that we do them. You know, their their idea of baptism, they have infant baptism, other churches. They have, you know, the Lord's Supper, actually, the, the, the elements actually becoming the body and blood of Christ, right? So the way that we do it probably is a better way to say that about the two ordinances. As far as this one here, we believe very strongly in saved church membership as Baptists. The word church is a word that means a called out assembly. So, we are called out of the world and called out to God. Okay? So, if we are then it is critical that our congregation, if we have people who are here's why it's so important, okay? I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me let me back up. Um first Let me tell you why it's important for the person uh, being saved. It it, it reflects on a person's own condition. It reflects on a person's own condition. So if we allow a person into a church, they can actually join a church thinking that they are saved because, hey, this church accepted me. This church allowed me to join in membership. And so we could actually unhelpfully give them a false assurance of salvation. Like, hey, I'm okay. You know, even though I'm living however I want, like the world, I'm a member of this church. They accept me as a Christian. I'm a Christian. Okay? Secondly, it's a reflection on Christ. Christ is the head of the church, and if the world sees that member out there living loosely, living in immorality, not caring about their life, what does that say about our church? What does that say about Christ? whom our church is supposed to represent, right? It's, it's a bad reflection on on Christ. And further, okay, we, we call this thirdly, if we have autonomy as a local church, what happens if we have a congregation that is half full of unbelievers and now, what does the autonomy of the church do for us? It, it has to do with what? Okay, decisions, government of the church. So if, if as the congregation, we're governing how the church is going to practice, and we have half of the congregation made up of unbelievers. What if we have three-quarters of the congregation made up of unbelievers? What kind of pastor do you think they're going to bring into power or, or, or into, into service? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Service. Um, what kind of deacons are they going to select okay what what kind of programs are they going to wanna to, to, to run how are they going to spend their money? They're not being led by the spirit. That's why it is so critical that we guard the front door of our church. What I mean by that is not okay, we got our bouncers outside the front door. And anybody who tries to visit our church, we send them away if we don't like them. They don't dress the right way. They don't look the right way. They don't answer the right questions. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the front door of church membership. We work hard to guard the front door of the church so that we can protect our body from potentially getting someone in who is an unbeliever. Now, we are not perfect. Okay, I'm going to tell you how we protect the front door, but we are not perfect and we can't we can't have an x-ray machine that looks into their spiritual heart, unfortunately. So we do our best as a church to find out. And by the way, that's your responsibility to to guard that front door, not just the leadership. So there will be times when we find out over time that this person actually wasn't a believer. You know? And and we have a mechanism to Remove them from our church, don't we? What is that? Church discipline, right? Excommunication. That kind of has a bad connotation because it comes from a Catholic. I mean, we think it comes from a Catholic thing, but that's actually a biblical thing. You actually excommunion. Excommunion someone. Right? The Lord's Supper, communion, where we say we're coming together as one body, believing, affirming to the truths of the Scripture, and holding fast to the covenant that we have affirmed. And then when we remove somebody, we're saying we're excommunioning you, right? We're, we're removing you from fellowship with our church because we no longer believe that you are Jesus' representative, or we can't tell if you are one. Okay, so um, our church guards the front door. Okay, I hope I hope you understand this process because this is important. This is your responsibility as the congregation. We guard the front door by First, requiring every single candidate for membership to go through a six-hour class. It's basically six 45-minute sessions, but but sometimes we do that over six weeks. Sometimes we do it over two Saturdays, like we have coming up in August, August 9th, August 16th. We require them to go through that class. What that does is it tells them what we believe as a church. In fact, this class right here that you're listening to right now is one of the the sessions that they listen to uh, during that. Uh, six-period introduction to our church. Another one that they're going to listen to is what we're going to look at next week. We're going to just take our statement of faith and walk right through it. Look at every doctrine that we believe, that we believe as a church. Okay, so that's the first step. If If you're a candidate for our membership, you need to go through that class. Secondly, you need to give a credible testimony of your salvation. So the deacons and I meet with every single candidate for membership individually and And just want to hear their testimony of salvation, okay uh, and their testimony of baptism if they've been baptized. Um, thirdly, we evaluate the deacons and I make an evaluation, and then we make a recommendation to the congregation. What we try to do each time is to give you a, uh, an idea um before voting. What their testimony is about, so that you and, and certainly um, we, we try to give notice so that you know that they're planning to join the church. So if you need to ask them some questions before you vote, you're welcome to do that. We try to, to give you a little um, brief synopsis of their testimony, and then we'll say if we recommend them or not for membership. And then the fourth is that you vote on on them whether they should be. So that's how we guard the front door of the church. By the way, in order for a church to join, a person to join the church. They can't just be saved. they have to be baptized. because our Lord's Supper, our, our requirement, based on what we understand from the scripture, is that a person needs to be saved and baptized in order to take a part of the, part of the Lord's Supper. Um, that's just the first step of obedience, and we, we expect them to do that. so, so for example, um, you know someone wanted to come to the church and they were saved and they were saved for a long time, if they wanted to join our church, they would need to be baptized. If they had been baptized in another church, we'll accept that as long as it was a scriptural baptism, okay so the the um, saved church membership, do you see why it's so critical that we have that? if If we are going to have autonomy as a local church, we need saved church members. and um, that's why we're constantly on guard and 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 um, wanting to watch out for our flock and make sure that people are giving evidence evidences of our faith. and that's why occasionally we're going to have to just look at our membership role and see who's on there that we can't we can't see we can't have visible assurance that they are a jesus representative um and so we have to just find out where they're at and and if they are not willing to come back into fellowship with our church then we don't say that they're unbelievers we just say we can't we can no longer affirm that you are a believer right so that someone could move like for example pat alberton i believe she's a believer She's moved up to LA City, and so we can no longer validate we we can no longer testify to whether she's a Jesus representative or not. I believe she is, but we we don't see her anymore, right So at some point we're just going to have to probably at the next business meeting we're just gonna have to say listen you know we we can no longer validate whether you're a Christian or not and so we're we're gonna have to remove we're we've uh, we have communicated to her since the last time that she's been here. And she's made statements that she's wanted to um, you know, join with another church but just hasn't found anything yet. So so we need to do that all over because once we start just making concessions here and there, then before we know it, we're going to have a whole uh, assembly full of, of people who ought not to be a part of our church. Quick story, and we'll move on to these last two. Uh, Jonathan Edwards inherited... I guess you could say his grandfather's church in um, Massachusetts or somewhere out in New England. Uh, Solomon Stoddard, what is his name? Solomon Stoddard believed in open communion and eventually uh, and, and allowed people to join into membership even if they didn't have a credible testimony of salvation. So his grandfather, Jonathan Edwards, would allow people to come into membership and basically on the testimony of their parents. So for example, let's say... I had a kid that was unsaved. I don't, as far as I know. But, but they were unsaved. And, I, you know, on my testimony, you need to take him into membership. And so they would do this. And over the decades and so on, they ended up having uh, half of the church that, was, that were clearly unbelievers and non-affirming unbelievers. They didn't affirm it at all. And the other half, who were believers, and Jonathan Edwards is working through this for 25 years, And uh, he finally became convinced at one point, 25 years later, after he had taken the church, that he needed to make it clear who the believers were and who the unbelievers were. So he preached on close communion for months, tried to make it clear why it was so important, and and, uh, tried to make that change. When the people found out that he was making that change, they decided to take it to a vote. And it wasn't a vote of whether we should take his type of communion or not, which I believe is a biblical type of communion. But it was whether or not we should keep Jonathan Edwards as our preacher. Keep him as our pastor. Anybody know the rest of the story? They voted him out. After 25 years. Why? They had a congregational system, but it was flawed because they allowed so many, even before he had started there, but they allowed so many unbelievers in that you have people who are not being led by the Spirit making a choice that they shouldn't be making. The greatest preacher in United States history was voted out of his own church after 25 years because the system was flawed. Okay, that's why it's so important, Okay, just the anecdotal evidence, that it is so critical for us as Baptists to guard the front door of the church and open the the back door up wide, okay? Keep the back door wide open of church membership. that is people are are going to live like the world. We're not quick to do it. We're merciful in it. you know we I hope you've noticed that we've taken time. We don't like first sign of them not coming or them committing any sin. see ya no we we take time we We want to do it with grace, but we're not afraid to to do that, okay, and that's why. And the reason I think it is so important is because uh, it, it really marks us out as a truly biblical church. And that's why, you know, I, I think there are a lot of other Christians in these other churches, Presbyterian churches, some of the Lutheran churches. I think there are lots of other godly people. I read a lot of their books, not, just, not because they are, but just because they're Protestant and they, they have the Spirit of God working through them. And... And so I believe there are a lot of Christians, but I think they're seriously flawed in a lot of these areas. How they observe baptism, how they observe the Lord's Supper, how they handle church membership. Okay? So so this is something that we obviously feel very strongly strongly about. Number seven, number eight, two offices, pastor and deacons. Okay, this is not distinctively Baptist. There are other churches that have this. But we believe that there are two offices that are elected by the congregation and servants of the people. Okay, the pastor and the deacons. Deacons are there to to help the pastor be able to do what he needs to do, which is prayer and the ministry of the Word. Those are the primary two tasks. And I try to remind our deacons often that that I need to be spending the majority of my time on those two things. And yes, I have to oversee everything else but you need to help me, okay? your responsibility is to be there and to and to help that's remember remember how they originally started. You had these widows who were had this huge conflict, and the apostle says, that's important for those widows to, to be taken care of. I mean, what's more important than helping widows, right? And they actually said there's one thing more important. it's our responsibility uh to preach and pray. Not that we're going to neglect them. No, instead, let's raise up deacons selected from the church, the congregation chooses, and, and you find people who are full of the Spirit. I said they were they were chosen by lots, but I was thinking of Acts 1, not Acts 6. Acts 6, they actually were chosen by the congregation by vote. Okay. Um, and so that's their responsibility. They need to help pick up some of the slack around the church so that the, the pastor can give his his time to preaching and praying. Last separation. Okay, this is again not distinctly Baptist or other churches that are separatists, and praise God for them. Um, but we believe in personal separation from worldliness. We believe in personal separation from disobedient believers. Uh, as as a church, we separate ourselves from other churches or religious groups that deny the fundamentals of the faith. Okay, so we we are not isolationists. That we're us for no more. We don't believe anybody else is going to heaven. You know they're all godless people. We don't believe that, um, but we do separate ourselves from people who are clearly denying the fundamentals of the faith. And then thirdly, um, civil separation, which is a separation of church and state. Uh, we believe that this is a good model to follow. Obviously, we can't always live in a free state, but praise God that we do, and we believe that uh, there sh- we should be free as a church to to believe what we want to believe and not have the state tell us what we have to believe or how we ought to practice. You know, if they tell us we need to have homosexuals on our leadership in our church, we just simply have to reject that um, because that's against the Scriptures. Okay, so so praise God for the time now in which we are in a free state, but but we believe that that is the best uh, for us. All right. I just uh, opened up a fire hose and just unleashed it on you. Did you guys get a drink at all? Were you able to to take any of that in, or was it too much? You're still trying to recover from getting blown over from the force. Okay, I I recognize that was a lot of material. Um, But do you have any questions? Anybody thankful that they're a Baptist? Okay, obviously we're more thankful that we are in Christ. But I I love being a Baptist. I hope you recognize that. Um, Ken. <laughs> That's good. All right. Let's pray. And we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for um, the foundation of truth. Thank You that we can trust in Your Word. And, Lord, we don't want to hold this up as some prideful thing like we've got all figured out and nobody else does. But we are thankful for men who fought dearly for these truths and people who um, probably endured great amount of persecution and even martyrdom as a result of standing up for these things. And, uh, Lord, we... We stand on their shoulders and praise you for this foundation. Help us to to carry this on uh, with great um, humility and love for you. And ultimately, we pray that our final authority would be your word. In Jesus' name, amen.